0: Anchor FM, this is Etch the Edges. Well, we climb the steep cliffs of the divide, the issues that separate us from the right and the left, and we do the hard work of closing that divide. Find the common ground we know we all share. Hi, I'm B.S. Brown, your host, and together we will etch the edges. America has often been at the crossroads, and yet here we are again. What do we do? And how do we do it? Together, Let's get into it. Our purpose, to do the work. To truly peel away at the extremes, for it's the extremes, the extremes that divide us. The tail is wagging the dog. Small groups of people with outsized voices are commanding the stage and the rest of us, well, the rest of us suffer for it. It's time for all that to change. Let's lean into discomfort. Let's have the hard conversations And together, let's Etch the Edges. Welcome back to Etch the Edges. Today we have Greg Kennard, Georgia House Representative for District 102 with us today. And we're going to go ahead and dive in a bit into his background, what he does, why he does it. And again, as we always discuss here on H.G. Edge, it's just about understanding, conversation, talking. We're regular, everyday people trying to get engaged in the political process. We want to close the ideological divide. We want to have 100% transparency and just say the things that matter. So with that common understanding today, Greg Kennard. Happy to have you, Greg. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing well, Derek. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, we're going to go ahead and dive right in. So, you know, uh, first out the gate, tell us who you are. You know, what's been your journey to this position? And it's politics, man. Why do you do it?
1: All right. Well, I wear many hats, as most people do. First of all, I'm a husband. My wife, Pam, she's my best friend. We've been married 30 years now, this September. We have three uh, beautiful daughters who are now 25, 24 21, uh, two of them are public educators. Um, tomorrow morning, my youngest who's 21, she's graduating from Georgia State with a criminal justice degree and then we'll be going into law school to work on criminal defense. And so that's, that's who I like to identify with mostly as I'm a, I'm a dad and I'm a husband. Uh, beyond that, I'm a minister, uh, an occupational pastor for my entire adult career I founded Inspire Outreach, which is a church organization here in Lawrenceville. We founded it 22 years ago. Uh, And the distinguishing factor about our church is that we're very, very, almost exclusively community-based. Our Sunday morning services are kind of an afterthought. The power of our church organization is Monday through Saturday, what we're doing outside the walls of the church, trying to end homelessness, domestic violence, working with people, doing just the really organic Jesus stuff, being a good Samaritan, clothing the naked, uh, bringing in the strangers. We have uh, transitional programs that work to end homelessness. So we have 70 people at a time in residence with us coming from incarceration, mental health facilities, drug treatment centers, the bridge. And we've been doing this for work for almost 15 years now. And we've served thousands of people and I've seen a lot of great Turnarounds with people's life as they get back on their feet, finding their personal power. Um, I'm a John Maxwell certified coach. Um, I do a lot of life coaching stuff with my ministry and with the program. Uh, I love to cut grass. I like landscaping. Um, I like music. I'm a I'm a musical artist. I play some piano and I love jazz in particular. Mm. Um, But it was really my work with the in the space of homelessness and domestic violence and poverty. That actually led me down this path towards political office. It had never been on my radar before ever. It's not even a thought. But the more I did the work of Inspire Outreach and in our transitional program, I began to see trends and seeing the same things over and over and patterns. And this, that's when it dawned on me that poverty is not only behavioral, but it's structural. There's a system in place that's creating a big percentage of the poverty that we see in our society. It's affected by policy and legislation, things in our educational policies, criminal justice policy, economic policy. So in the program, I work with individuals on the behavioral side where we're changing mindsets, belief systems, habits. Um, And then at at the house, state house, I'm working on policy and legislation on the structural end so that we don't have as much of this poverty as we're now seeing. That's that's powerful.
0: you know and there are a couple of things that I would I really love to unpack in what you just said. but let's first work it back from your your last statement. You're in the house. you're working on policy. You mentioned the fact that you know the poverty that folks experience here, it's structural. You know there's a reason and a rationale behind it. so you felt moved to get engaged to change those things. Mm-hmm. Now you're a Democrat and you're in the house trying to do that can you share a little bit of that experience because you know on the last program or like two episodes ago you know we were interviewing Shelly Hutchinson and of course there's the everything that comes out in the media and the Democratic Party is having it hard in the house how do you go about affecting change in your position how successful have you been in Clearly, you're still energized. What's making you run? What's keeping you going?
1: Well, you have to understand that it's it's the long game. You're, if you're trying to run for office and then your first term trying to affect a bunch of changes, it's just not going to happen. You, there's a certain amount of paying your dues, uh, getting your feet wet with the process. And, of course, uh, right now as Democrats, we are the minority party. So it's it's an uphill climb. It's a heavy lift to get anything really changed uh, uh, as far as originating legislation now we can work with the other side on making their um their legislation better bringing another perspective and that's certainly what i try to do right now is just be a voice for the perspectives of people that i'm working with saying listen this is how this law impacts this this and this and just doing my best to to weigh in to go to the well make speeches to oppose support Um, So it it is a tough climb right now, but I'm optimistic. Uh, My my goal as as of this moment, I don't really care about seeking any kind of higher office. I'm very content being a state representative, serving about 60,000 people and being one of 180 votes down at the Capitol. Um, If I'm fortunate enough to be elected five terms, that would give me a 10 year haul. And and I'm optimistic that in 10 years, I can see some of the things that's really in my heart. be impacted. So that's that's the strategy at this moment. But, I, you know, kind of what's in my wheelhouse of ideas is continued criminal justice reform. Under the governorship of Nathan Deal, there was some good movement in that direction. I've seen a reversal of that. Honestly, since we've had a new governor, um, there's, there's not a priority, but there's still a lot of work to be done in that space. When you evaluate our prison system, you some glaring statistics. As a matter of fact, the largest mental health service provider in our state is our prison system, is Georgia State Prisons. So by far, the way we're, we're dealing with mental health is incarceration versus working on the front end, providing adequate access to mental health services on the front end, rather than locking it up on the back end. We're also looking at school dropouts. The majority of our prison population is uh, comprised of people who dropped out of school. So there's an educational access issue that we've got to work harder on the front end with early childhood education. That's why I have written bills that expand pre-K, kindergarten. uh, Something that is very much on my mind is literacy rates, because there's a direct connection to someone's literacy rate and how well their life is going to go as an adult as a matter of fact third grade is an accurate predictor if a child is not reading on level by third grade they're more prone exponentially to uh, experience poverty uh, teen pregnancy poor health outcomes drop out of school and then being in our criminal system so right now two-thirds of all Georgia third graders are not reading on level that's a horror. That's a crisis. That's a crisis. So we really
0: about that, Greg. What you know, we've got to get clearly. That message has to be put out there. And you, what you're talking about, right, runs the the spectrum, the gamut, the the school to prison pipeline. Again, going back to structural poverty, and you're talking about attacking something that's fundamental, on its face, simple reading, which clearly isn't happening by the numbers.
1: We fix the literacy issue. We end mass incarceration.
0: Hmm. Wow, that you know, and, and that's a that kind of just boils. It's a salient point that just boils. You know, it's you. We should see when I when you say something like that. What I imagine is a call to arms, right? Mm-hmm. A mass call to arms. Something like I remember when I was a kid. You know, they had the um the the commercial. What we had Smokey the Bear. You know, the put the PSA, and you also had the one with the Native American who wasn't Native American that cried talking about clean American beautiful. Yeah. 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 You know, we don't see that that much anymore, unfortunately, but those kind of messages, you know, because culture and politics all runs through marketing, you know, at the end of the day, it's the message people receive and the policy that's bound up in it, you know, and, and it just, it just really hurts my heart to hear you say something like that out loud.
1: Well, that's why we've got to expand pre-K right now. About 60% of all eligible four-year-olds are participating. And we're already spending money on the issue. We're just spending it in the Department of Corrections. So we siphon 20% of the corrections budget to pre-K. We expand pre-K to every um, four-year-old in Georgia. And then we don't have a need for as many prisons as we have. We spend... Uh, K through 12 budget we spend about $8,000 per student per year. We spend $26,000 a year to lock up someone. Wow. So it, it's much more fiscally responsible to expand early childhood education than expand our prison system. Our prison system. It's Absolutely.
0: cheaper. It's, cheaper. it's it, it makes sense. It's 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 fiscally sound, which should please folks on the other side of the aisle. It's safe. It speaks to security which often is a high point on the other side of the aisle and from the social aspect which is what you often hear folks talk about on the left it gets the job done by elevating people out of poverty if i were to ask you right now greg i need a three-point plan to address that topic that you just laid on the table off the top of your head you know actionable policy what does that
1: look like well uh, first thing is again what i just mentioned expanding pre-k getting a jump on literacy on the front end where every four-year-old in Georgia is mandated. And in my bill, it's required. You have to start public school at four years old. That gives us four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. That gives us a five or six year jump on getting someone's reading uh, level up to where it should be congruent with third grade. That's, That's just the biggest factor right there. But also making sure that we have adequate access to higher levels of, of learning uh, with, you know, I, I signed a bill for my party that made Technical College free in Georgia, you know, that that's a big step. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that the more you learn, the more you earn, and I do believe that education is the great equalizer, and if we can get our folks uh, better access to education. and no matter what zip code you're in, there's a good public school and it's fully funded. We have to fully fund too many times in Georgia when we hit some kind of uh, economic crisis, the first thing to go. Cool. K through twelve it's unacceptable. you know So we have to make sure that <clears throat> and honestly, when it's fully funded, it's still not where it needs to be. We're on the bottom half in the US. of public education. The people who are um, in middle income and above students who come from that kind of home, they're doing well in our public schools, but those who are suffering with poverty level and below, they're not doing well. So we have to look at that and understand that kids coming from that uh, particular situation need more than a classroom and a Textbook, but there needs to be adequate wraparound services for support, for tutoring, for counseling, because their their situation is, is a little bit more traumatic. And just a teacher and a textbook isn't enough. We have to provide food security, counseling services, other uh, forms of support that they should be able to get at school.
0: I'm 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 right there with you, Greg. My my wife's a teacher, and I've looked at this issue for years. You know, you do you, the best you can within the parameters provided, right? And, you know, it's often one person thinking a thing and talking to another doesn't get it done. So first, I have I want to applaud you for stepping up because you're serving and you're doing the work of the people and calling that out is critically important. What I look at, what I think about with what you just said, you know, my wife is often, her and her fellow teachers have complained about it. All of these things can't be solved in school and it's not a teacher's job to solve all of that. What What shines to me is, what well, you said wraparound programs. Those are the things that you're right, they're missing. So the middle and upper class, we talk at them, we try not to often see their problems. You know, out of sight is often out of mind, but it come back, it comes back and it haunts us in rising crime rates and disparities that hurt our economy in, in ways that often enough we we miss. We'd be better off dealing with it on the front end. Totally agree with you on that, and I would really love to see. Because to me, it's the story, right? The things you just said just have to be shared over and over and over again, and that's where I get back to the marketing, the you know, the masses, and you know, numbers move the machine. The more folks talk the way you just said it, the more folks that are in charge will hear it. Leaders, elected officials, held accountable,
1: will have to change it. The thing is, uh, at the house, at the Capitol, we're well aware of this, but we're we're willing to accept that and, and that's that's just a problem with me no how, can you live, how can you sleep at night yeah. knowing this is the case yeah and just being willing to live with it. I, I just don't I don't get it.
0: it it takes a certain kind and that takes me back to another point that we've been making on the podcast for the last few episodes you don't sound like a political you don't sound like a politician and we like that we like that. What we often find is that when we speak to the politician, you know, it has a negative connotation, even though it, it, it shouldn't. It's supposed to be about serving. But what we really want are people that are willing to step up and aspire to be statesmen. And Greg, I got to say, in just these last few moments of conversation, you're really sounding like an aspiring statesman. So it makes me <laughs> kind of pull that politician label right off you, man. And and, and, and just, you know, do whatever I can to help you push the right types of things.
1: Well, like I I said, um, I had no aspirations for politics or elected office, but I was compelled to get involved because I realized that a lot of these outcomes I'm seeing with the the poor and with the homeless are directly impacted by policy and legislation. This structure is propped up by political power. So that's why... Everyday people who understand the impact of this have to they have to throw their hat in the ring and get involved. Uh, a lot of criminal justice reform, for instance, uh, criminal records and probation. Georgia is just one of the most punitive states. We have more people on probation than any other state in the union, four times the national average. We There are 11 million people in Georgia. We have 4.32 million criminal records in the DCIC system. So um, most of those criminal records are arrest only. They were not convicted. The the case was thrown out. Uh, The case was dismissed. They were found not guilty, but they still carry this criminal record, which is very punitive. So when employment housing, criminal record. So this is a person who was not convicted. It was arrest only. And and we still give them a criminal record. Also, most of the felonies even, uh, misdemeanors and felonies are non-violent. And when someone finishes their sentence, they serve their time, they pay their restitution, they're off probation they still carry this lifetime sentence of a criminal record way beyond the terms of their sentence, and that is continuing to punish that person for a lifetime. Right. So I've written bills to eliminate arrest-only records. Law enforcement can see it, can see their arrest record, but the general public uh, cannot. So when someone's applying for a job, the employer can't see that they were arrested only. Uh, Also, uh, wrote a bill that when someone finishes their sentence, they've satisfied the terms of their sentence, and they're done on a nonviolent felony, then this criminal record is restricted at that point. It doesn't continue to follow them.
0: So Greg, what happened to those bills? <laughs> <laughs> what happened to them?
1: Zero. And that's, uh, you know, that's the challenge and the frustration of being in the minority party. Um, none of my bills got even a hearing in a committee.
0: Wow. Wow. And see, and that's what, what takes me back. So you're talking, you're talking service, you're talking altruism, you're talking about trying to do the right thing, even if it's just from your perspective at the onset, you, you got to try to meld these things. So I want to, I want to pivot a little bit and ask you a direct question. You're in the house and I'm assuming at this time, you said it's a long game. So you can, without doing so, name names of folks who are in it just for the pursuit of power. And these same people prevent you from moving policy legislation forward that would help all Georgians. Is that an accurate assessment?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm not gonna be quite that harsher black and white with it that they're all just, um, or many of them are in it for power reasons for power i i do want to believe that uh, anybody who throws their name in the hat for public service that there's something organic something real something authentic where they want to really engage in public service it's just sometimes it comes down to perspective and and sometimes it's about the lobby and and the money there's a you know some say that crime doesn't pay i beg to differ there's a lot of money there's a lot we we have four private prisons in georgia And we have a contract, with the state has a contract where we are uh, required to keep them at 90% capacity. So there's a profit motive to incarcerate people. That's just wrong. That that, that,
0: that statement right there should incense every well-meaning citizen of the state of Georgia. A mandate to keep people in prisons means there's a fundamental break at the cultural and civil level, foundational, of our society. There has to be someone to put in the prison. That's the mandate. And quite
1: certainly- We have to feed those prisons. We have to get them- them.
0: You gotta feed it. So there are those that believe, quite certainly because the, the, the mandate pushes the belief that, well, there's always somebody out there that's vile enough to have to go to prison. So we shouldn't have a problem meeting that number. But you and I, as we've discussed it, there are methods whereby a lot of these folks, not meant, they, they weren't meant to be criminals at all. They're just, they're lost. They've got no guidance. They're
1: lost or they're, or they're ill. Yeah. They're ill. Mentally. They're not criminals. Ill. They're sick. And, um, you know, so, you know, it's its just the wrong on so many levels. You know, we have 38 state prisons, including the four private prisons. That's more, we have more state prisons and jails than we have universities and colleges. That's, that, that makes sense. <sighs> that okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Connect the dots here. Connect yeah. the
0: dots. Keep dropping horror lines here, Greg. They're, they're horror lines.
1: I'm sorry, but this is just the reality, and that's why I'm. I have to say it.
0: You know the, the interesting thing again. You know, I go back to um, I once coined a phrase called MDC, media driven consumer celebrity. Reality. It's another way of of you know just amalgamating propaganda and marketing together. You know, in wartime we call it propaganda. That's to inspire people to spend money to support the war of it. In peacetime, you know, it, it pushes consumerism, marketing, you know, um, these things always work. We just don't see enough of them, you know, relegated or assigned to moving policy anymore. Like I said at the beginning, talking about those PSAs around how you switch the culture. We've got a culture problem. We've got a culture problem here in this state. And it's real plain, and a lot of it just runs right under the surface. So I want to uh, switch it back to something you mentioned earlier. You know, you, you're clearly a man of faith. Right, um, you know, that's that's your heart and your soul and you believe in helping people. You and I, because you're my representative, we, we live in a district that is becoming highly diverse and there is a strong divide, you know, between right and left, ideology fighting ideology. How do you reach those people, Greg? You know, what's what's your point, plan and method, you know? How do you go about doing it? Because you just said it, you know, if these people are well-meaning, it has to be about perspective, but we see often enough in the echo chambers of, of social media, Facebook most prevalent, that um, no matter what you tell them, they refuse to listen.
1: Well, I, I grew up in Georgia. I grew up in uh, Gwinnett County. So I'm homegrown, very local, native to the area. And I grew up as a the typical I'm I'm white, I'm male, I'm heterosexual, I'm able-bodied, I'm Christian. So I've got all the privileges that you could have. I mean, I'm walking around with all this currency of being white, male, Christian, heterosexual, and able-bodied. And I think what's maybe important, why I may be an important voice is because there's not a lot of people with my particular identities that are also on, uh, I I consider myself center left. Um, And there's just not a whole lot of people with my identities um, that are on that side of the political aisle. And so I I think it's important for voices like mine. Maybe I have a way to compel people who have similar identities to me and say, hey, this this is a, a perspective we need to listen to. We need to be better listeners, be more empathetic. And that's what I try to do. I try to confirm and affirm um, the messages of, of people of color, of people who are, have been ostracized and marginalized and disenfranchised, because someone like me, I have no idea what that's about. I, I, this land was made for me. <laughs> I mean, the system is set up for someone like me to succeed. I have every possible advantage. So it would be easy for me to assume, and for many years I did that it's an equal playing field. We've, we went through the civil rights movement. We had a civil war. We had Brown versus the Board of Education and all these inequities have been solved now. But uh, as I have learned they're not, there's still um, a residue of the past that's on our current situation. And so you have to open your eyes, be a good listener, read books other than the ones that affirm your own paradigm um, and, and really try to empathize and stretch outside your bubble so that you can identify better. And I, I've attempted to do that. You know, a white privilege is a thing. It's a disease. It's not easily um, healed and I'm still working through that. I, I still have huge amounts of blind spots. You know, Jesus said, why do you try to get the speck out of someone's eye when you've got this plank in your eye? I got, I got so many planks that skew, and obstruct my vision, but I work hard to talk to other people, to be a good listener, read other things, watch other things that expand my worldview. And so someone like me, I think can be a a bridge builder between these two sides. And and that's what I I try to do. I try to communicate very candidly, honestly, to the people from my community, that this is a real perspective, and uh, things are not as they seem. But, you know, I, my faith compels me to be a bridge builder. Jesus said, "Blessed are the peacemakers." So, I, I do believe there can't be two, true peace without true justice, and I certainly preach that message. But at the same time, I try to find a way to build bridges, find middle ground, and and I must and I must say that this gets lost in today's narrative. Most of the time when I'm down at the Capitol, I'm sitting in a committee meeting, I'm sitting in the House chamber, and I'm voting on bills that are coming our way. And Derek, the reality is that most of the time, I'm pushing the green button supporting whatever the legislation is from a Republican, but it's still a good bill. And I would say at least 90% of the bills that do pass are bipartisan in nature, both sides agree and we're getting things done for that serve all Georgians, And that's happening 90% of the time. There is that other six, seven, eight, ten percent of bills that are really polarizing, they're real contentious, controversial, and we're all retreating to our entrenched corners and we're in direct opposition. But that's the that's the exception and, and not the rule. And that gets lost in today's conversations. We're not talking about the 90%. That we're all together, we're all on the same page. We're talking about the 5 or 10%. That's just a lightning rod uh, of controversy and gets all the media attention and it sucks all the oxygen out of the room. But but I want to to be that person that says, hey, 90% of the time, we're in lockstep with one another and there's harmony.
0: Well, you know what? I got got to tell you, Greg, that, because again, to me, it's always context. It's always story. You're the first person that I've heard say that. You, you, you're right. Controversy sucks all the air out of the room, and you know when there's no air in the room, people can't breathe. It's really quite simple, but folks would need to understand that there is often that much alignment. These things that separate us are strong barriers, but you know a concept that I am currently pushing real hard: FCT, familiarity, comfort, and trust we identify where we have common ground. And you just talked about that. There are dimensions in your diversity wheel, so to speak, where you heavily identify with folks on the other side of the ideological divide. Where you are different in those cultural dimensions, you have a different perspective. Your belief fuels it, it pushes it. But as you just said, if we are true, if we are transparent and both sides want to do what's best, we should be able to ignore all the noise Keep some air in the room and talk about why those disparities exist, and keep pushing and pushing and pushing until we get to something that really works for us all. That 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 makes sense to me.
1: So I, I think this is, this is a conversation that needs to happen to bring uh, more healing to our very divided country. But you know, I don't I don't begrudge division. Um, division means there's more than one vision. Right. When you have more than one vision, you have division. And, and, and of course, as there's 180 House members. Effectively, we have 180 visions. So there's division. And this country and our founding fathers built this government on division. It's an adversarial system where there's two parties, there's three branches of government, and they're all checking and balancing one another. It's designed to be an argument. Democracy is an argument. So I don't begrudge that. I just think there's a tone that we can do that in. That's uh, where I can be. Where there can be division, but I don't have to be divisive. Where we can have disagreement, but we don't have to be disagreeable. Jesus said, uh, He didn't say a house divided cannot stand. He said a house divided against itself cannot stand. So we can be divided, have different opinions, as long as we don't turn so venomously against one another and vilify, and demonize someone who doesn't think like me. I can love chocolate without hating vanilla.
0: <laughs> <laughs> a very, a very appropriate metaphor. It's it, it, it. It's real plain to me, and I'm quite certain you'd agree. The hallmark of the critical thinker is the sincere ability to internalize perspective of others, most especially when that perspective is diametrically or even violently opposed to your own. As you said, our nation, our, our, our way of life, is adversarial in how it comes up. But conflict comes in two modes: positive and negative. We need positive conflict because in the cauldron of ideas, differences create something better at the end of the day. That's yeah. what you want coming out of the oven, basically. You know, we can't live well without that. So we need healthy conflict. We need differing ideas, but we don't need echo chambers. We don't need confirmation bias. To your point, we need to understand that we, even as we aspire and continue to work through equality, we have not found strong footing on equity and those things are real. You know, I would ask you because you said that's what you you continue to push when you're dealing with conservatives, Greg. And you know, you talk about the things where you are like like those dimensions where you are equal with those who think differently. How does the conversation go for you? I mean, when, when we're talking about that there's no people of color around or you know, no differing ethnicities. I'm one that says race is a misnomer. It, it doesn't exist so you won't often hear me say there are black races and white races because quite honestly they aren't but um we are different ethnically and we definitely have strong cultural disparities but when you're in that room and it's just you know the white folk you know and they're like greg what in the what in the hell because i'm gonna tell you you know I, i've been checking you out on on facebook and to be quite honest greg i think you've been to more black lives matter marches than i have so um it says a lot and it's a powerful statement a beautiful one in my opinion but what do the other white folks say who, who think differently?
1: They, uh, I, I gave a, a speech in the well, I think it was the last day, and I really just called out white privilege and 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 I really called out people on the committee and in the House who were passing a bill that put the onus of police and citizen engagement on on the citizen instead of giving the police more training the bill suggested we need to give our citizens more training and when they get their driver's license and this whole curriculum on how you react with the police suggesting that all of the police abuse and lethal forms of uh, force it's because the citizen didn't do what they were supposed to do you know and I, i i called that out and um and I just really addressed white privilege and how this bill smacks of it because it, because I, I sat in committee when uh, some of our representatives of color and other advocates of color came to speak against that bill, saying that it lacks perspective from the communities of color, and it just met with they dismissed it, they laughed it off. So I did a whole speech on it, and um, the, I think I think it may have made a difference, uh, got people thinking. And those are one of the speeches that someone like me with my identities can, can say with authenticity because I have been uh, in my privilege and have been blind to a lot of this stuff and just laughed off um, that white privilege even existed. But in the last few years, I've evolved to understand that it is a thing. But one of the representatives after I gave the speech came up to me and said, man, you must be Catholic. I said, what do you mean? He said, you live with so much guilt I said, man, this isn't this isn't white guilt. This is being this is white responsibility. I said, you know, there's things that we cannot do about the past, but our current set of societal issues is our responsibility. And when there is inequity, folks like us need to step up who have have been the dominant group for so long. And if we're going to dismantle this structure, it's going to be require some folks that look like you and me uh, to do it. So, you know, it's a it's a mixed. It's just, it's just white. (laughs) It's the white community that's just having a difficult time turning this corner, releasing our power, understanding that there's we're not going to be the dominant group for too long, and we're really just uh, it's a death rattle, and we're kicking and screaming, trying to hold on to our fragile white power i mean it's just it's white fragility as someone said you know I mean? yeah
0: yeah and, and it, it's amazing to hear you say that because i was going to ask you about that next but you went right to it you know to me and i've had conversations with conservative friends who at first they don't necessarily see it as a fear thing or a fragility thing or if i agree to that then i am you, you're telling me i should feel guilty no I'm, I'm just asking you to see that these things are facts they're real it's 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 a function independent of you, and what it really looks like to me is you're afraid. There's a fear of loss, a fear that power turned over to what you really do consider the other is going to somehow erode your well-being, your lifestyle, and it speaks volumes to you know the indictment in my perspective of our culture how it stands. You know, I was telling my friend, you know, um, people of color, we think about racism, because race isn't real, every single solitary day. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, it's often, it starts in your childhood, you're blessed if you, like me growing up in Southwest Atlanta, I, I didn't think about racism as far as I can recall back quite for some time until I was like, you know, becoming eight, nine or 10, But still. Eight, nine, or ten, and now all of a sudden, I'm thinking about the fact that I look different. And it really occurred because I, I switched schools from, you know, uh, Atlanta to unincorporated Fulton County, where all of a sudden I got, you know, uh, a whole bunch of white people around me, and the differences became glaring. These things, they're they're, they're real, and uh, you know, it, it just it. The more people, to me, who eventually start to speak like you because you seem to have no fear that something bad is going to happen to you if there's a Black person on the city council. Um, the more folks think like that, the better off we'll be. I mean, that's happening right now in our county, right? I mean, the the shift that the local Gwinnett government has all of a sudden become this bastion of color. Seems that people are like, is it safe to say, Greg, that some folks are just losing it?
1: Yeah, I mean, Gwinnett County is uh, an interesting context, because like I said, I grew up in Gwinnett County. I went to Parkview High School, graduated in 1984, and my entire K through 12 experience, I had not one person of color that I went to school with. Of course, the last 20, 25 years, most of the growth of Gwinnett has come from communities of color. And now we're seeing the next level of that diversity in terms of elected office. And so my my view has been the last 25 years we've become more diverse however it's still been the dominant group who held the seats of power in terms of elected offices the the county commissioner board the sheriff the da all the city councils were still controlled by the dominant group but now since 2020 it's it's a very different picture and now it's been it's, it's gonna be interesting to me to see what Uh, the white community does with this. We've been okay with people of color in our community as long as we still had the strings of power. But now that we don't, now that the school boards change, commissioner boards change, city councils are changing, the DA's change, our superior court judges are changing. What would the white community do now? And so I think there'll be some white flight, um, but I think there's enough of us who are committed I'm excited. I think Gwinnett's days, best days are ahead of us. Awesome. I think our new commissioner board, I think our new school board are incredible. And I think they're going to take us to the next level.
0: Uh, that, that is just, that warms my heart to hear you say that, Greg. I, I share your belief. If there's any one thing that a coalition of the willing, so to speak, right? You know, um, people of color that are now in power and white folks like yourself, who seem to have a deep understanding that we all want the same thing, we want to thrive. Is there, is there one compelling message from your experience, both from faith and serving in, in the political arena, that you would say to white people, that we as a coalition could say to white people, look, you don't need to flee to Cherokee County, or Forsyth. by the way, folks of color are going there too, um, just so you know. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. But is there one thing that you think we could say to, to, to move heart and mind, to let it go and just work together?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, I, I am to my core a person of faith. I'm a follower of Christ. And I'm unapologetic in that. But, you know, my faith shapes my worldview. And um, I, I think this is ultimately the will of God, this diversity, this unity. Jesus said, to pray that His kingdom come, His will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Ultimately, our communities and societies should be a reflection of heaven. There is no segregated heaven. Um, John the Revelator said, I saw a multitude around the throne of God, and it was every tribe, every language, every culture, every ethnicity together in this place of of worship and spirit. Um, One of my favorite scriptures comes from Isaiah 40, where it says, Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill will be made low, the crooked place is straight, the rough place is plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and we will all see it together. But if you kind of understand that imagery where the low places are raised, the high places are de-escalated for equity, and then this, these crooked places are straight, the rough places are, uh, you know, we, we work out where there's been problems and Uh, crooked places where people have been, there's been uh, barriers created and we get all that done, we work work to form a more equitable society. Then the glory of the Lord is going to be revealed in such a level that we'll all see it together. together, So So, um, that's just inspiring to me to just to know that this, this journey that we're on this evolution of humanity and planet earth, that it is moving towards this spiritual idea that's been imagined in the in the imagination of god the whole time
0: That's that's awesome greg and maybe we can keep the message in that vein because we know on the much more rabid side of the ideological divide when you talk about raising and bringing down to a much more equitable level a lot of them the first thing they're going to say is well you know we don't like marxism or communism or they'll throw out socialism the 100 year old canard or the the you know distribution uh, wealth distribution of my hard-earned money to people who don't deserve it. We got to figure out how to keep that part out of the conversation.
1: Yeah, that's that's bogus because you know, to whom much is given, much is required. Jesus said, and also, we are our brother's keeper. So it's not about me. It's it's about us. Uh, forgive us our transgressions, as we forgive those. Give us this day our daily bread lead us not you know it's all about us
0: that is perfect because as you said we're, we're all in this together that's it it really is about us well Greg I want to give you the last word um because here's the thing right you serve you mm-hmm. serve both as a man of faith you serve in the house for the state but to be quite honest right as a uh member of the house you can't do it by itself you know, it, it takes the work of the people that you represent. And we know that, like you said, where I think we're in an inflection point, often enough people think we are, I think we're at a real one. You know, one that's even more fundamental than the one folks thought we were in in 07, when we elevated Obama to the White House. Because, you know, that elevation brought out so much of what clearly was hidden under the surface and pegged deep. We needed that to come out, right? So we can address it. I think we've come to another point where we see power shifting, People becoming scared and concerned. And, you know, the work can't be just for the elected. You represent us, but you can't do it by yourself. What would you want your constituency to do? You know, I know we got to get engaged. we we, we we've got to talk about things that are relevant. We've got to be more active. What do you need the folks who put you in office to do to help you move the agenda forward?
1: Well, of course, elections have consequences and you have to vote really every election because even the, the midterm elections and, and voting all the way down the ballot, you know, my term is two years. So we're turning over every two years in Georgia, we have a chance to overthrow the government <laughs> through, <laughs> the vote, through the vote. And so every two years, you need to make sure you're engaged, you're informed and um, vote all the way down the ballot from the governor to the tax commissioner, uh, the president, all the way down to your state representative, your state senator, your county commissioner, your board member, uh, every, every election has uh, consequence. And so you know, as a person of faith, uh, sometimes we put a lot of um, emphasis on, on prayer and, and worship and, and those things are certainly more important but we also have to understand that our community, our society is propped up by political power. So there is a place for me to go in my closet and pray for our world, but I've got to come, come out of that closet and affect change with some very practical things like uh, like my vote. Frederick Douglass said, I prayed for 20 years for my freedom, but I didn't get anywhere until my prayers grew legs. <laughs> mm. And um, so we we have to grow legs to our prayers and, and put some action behind it. Faith without works is... Is dead. So, you know, it's important to the faith community. My faith has a a stake in what's going on in my world, but it's got to be more than that. I I believe that it's not really prayer that changes things. Prayer changes me, and then I change things.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, we need to get some legs, Greg. (laughs) We need more legs on more people in this district, in this county, in this state. Um, I, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. That is, in my opinion, the work of the people. I've always said that I vote critically and that every official, you know, I get to hold them accountable. No one gets my vote for free. That means I need to read the platforms. I need to understand every candidate. American freedom takes work. And sometimes, you know, a lot of folks don't like it. We've been too lazy, you know, but and I'm still shocked at The last election where a lot of folks I know said, to be quite honest, Derek, this is the first time I ever voted. And I'm like, you? you know, and you're a well-to-do person and usually part of them not voting is because they were well-to-do. It, it worked out for them, but you you hit the nail on the head. You got to vote for yourself, your family, your community, your state, the nation. Every election counts and we all have to do the work. So thank you for that.
1: Yeah, th- we can't assume that the work's ever done. I mean, who knew that in 2020, we're still dealing with issues that we cycled through in the 50s and 60s. So that's just, um, that's an eye opener in and of itself that we can never say, check, work is done. I think every generation is going to have to fight for their own set of civil rights, that the the work of civil rights is never done. And that's clear.
0: Absolutely. And that is the perfect point to close on the work of civil rights is never done. And that is very clear. Well, I got to tell you, it's been a real pleasure greg um state Re- georgia state representative district 102 greg kennard a true statesman thank you for being on H-E-A, just so we really appreciate you and we would love for you to come back sometime
1: my pleasure greg thank you
0: it's about context it's about the story we need understanding we need to share this is no game but how do we get it? We need to do the work. The work of ensuring officials address the real problem, not the symptoms, not the fabrications, no lies. Thank you, Representative Kennard, for stepping up and committing to the work. Etch the Edges is regular people talking topics that affect assault, topics that are often far from regular. In Georgia, the work is incredibly hard, but it is not impossible. Statesmen like Representative Greg Kenner point the way. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. So please like and subscribe. Tell your family. Tell your friends. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Edge And don't forget to visit our website at theedges.com. Check us out. Join the movement. Express your commitment to the cause cause for a better America, a better world. Where we all can stand together at the mountaintop. Do it for America. Do it for the world. Be good to yourselves. And each other. We'll see you next time.